0: pray that you would use Matt and uh, open up your word to us and uh, speak to us and help us to apply it to our lives so that we might be changed from it. So God, give Matt the words now. I pray for your spirit to help him. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that introduction, Pastor Corey. And uh, Stephen, thank you for giving him the information (laughs) I needed for that. (laughs) Uh, well, hello, West Covina Christian Church. It's uh, good to see you guys. Uh, this is my second Sunday to the in-person, so I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, everyone this year, but it's really good to see you guys all. Um, hope you had a good Christmas, whatever it is you ended up doing. Um, this is a really strange holiday season, isn't it? You know, where, where we used to gather with loved ones, uh, we only see them on the computer screen or, uh, you know, only hear their voices on the phone. There's no Christmas caroling. There's no more Christmas choir. We don't get to see the lights up in the, the mall anymore. Um, feels different. <laughs> and you know, as we enter in this time between Christmas and New Year's, uh, we usually start thinking about what the next year will hold. And with everything still kind of shut down and travel plans canceled, I, I suspect that we'll spend even more time wondering about the future this year. Uh, because we aren't busy with our Christmas parties or travel or holiday parties or whatever it is that you end up doing around this time. Uh, normally, I would be on my way up to NorCal with my family to visit uh, other family up there, um, That, but also to stuff my face with a Fenton's ice cream creation, <laughs> which is in fact usually larger than my face, so <laughs> I cannot wait for all this to be done so that I can be reunited with loved ones. <laughs> um, uh, so as we go into this week between this year and the next one, I thought it would be appropriate to look at a passage from Ecclesiastes that talks about the seasons of life. So Ecclesiastes is a book written by Solomon. He was the king of Israel and the son of David. And he's not he's perhaps not most famous for his wealth, although it was great, nor for his power, though it was great, but for his wisdom. You see Solomon was fabulously successful, probably more so than anyone alive today. He had all the money, a net worth of about $2 trillion by today's standards. Uh, To put that into perspective, the wealthiest person in today is Jeff Bezos. And even he tops out at around 113 billion. So much more wealthy. Uh, Solomon was also extremely successful, ruling over Israel during its golden years. and not only that, but his constituents actually liked him. <laughs> so definitely a very hard thing to accomplish today. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was the guy who did it all. Um, but more so than any of that, uh, God appeared to him in a dream early on in his rule and asked him, if I could give you anything, what would you want? And Solomon, he didn't ask for the money. He didn't ask for the power. What he asked for was wisdom. Uh, and God granted that. And he became... Probably the wisest person who has ever lived. Um, but so, when we usually see someone famous in society, like some celebrity or some business leader or something, uh, you know, whenever they get an interview, what's the first thing they tend to get asked? How did you do it? What is your secret? What did you do right that we need to do? What have you learned that we can take away and gain some measure of the same success that you found? Right. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is the answer to that question. It was written near the end of his life and it serves as the parting wisdom that he left to his people and by extension to us. It contains his testimony about seeking pleasures and building great monuments and sampling everything life has to offer in this world, trying to find some kind of meaning and trying to find something of lasting significance. But he keeps coming back to the same conclusion that everything is Hebel, a Jewish word that is often translated as meaningless or vanity, but really means breath-like or vapor-like. It's fleeting, it's hard to grasp, it's here one moment and then ultimately it's just gone. He is near the end of his life looking back and instructing us and warning us about what life is like. So with that context in mind, let's let's turn to our passage, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sew. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate a time for war and time for peace. What gain has the worker for his toil? Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now, I'm sure that at least half of this passage is very familiar to many of you. It was popularized by a bird song in the 60s. Turn, turn, turn. Uh, But maybe you've also heard this passage read at a funeral. Maybe even the funeral of a non-believer. We're gonna divide this passage into two sections. The first will be a look at this famous poem in the first half, Uh, and the second is probably a bit less familiar, but it is nonetheless crucial for understanding what Solomon is trying to say here. So Solomon opens this chapter with a poem about the seasons of life. Now, the important thing to realize is that this is not meant to be prescriptive or instructive. Okay? It's not like the Bible is saying, well, there's a time to kill, so. (laughs) Uh, Please don't take that away as your application, Uh, they'll probably never let me back here again. (laughs) So yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, No, this poem is meant to be a description of life, perhaps not an exhaustive look, but an all-encompassing one. It contains 14 pairs of times, and 14 is a multiple of seven, and although people tend to get a little weird about biblical numerology, we see without a doubt throughout scripture that seven is an important number. We see it all the way in the beginning in Genesis, where God created everything in seven days. And we see it all the way at the end in Revelations, where we have the seven seven churches, seven seals, seven lampstands, all that. So seven usually represents completeness or totality in the Bible. So this poem is meant to contain the entirety of life. It's meant to be an overall view at what life contains. So let's take a look at it. Verse one, verse two. Right from the get go, we have a time to be born. Now, I've never been much of a baby guy. Uh, I like them enough and I appreciate them, uh, but I've never been crazy about them. You know, I don't like need to hold your baby. I'm not afraid I'm gonna drop them or anything. Like I just, I know, it's just never been, <laughs> been that way. Um, but even I can recognize that babies are a source of great joy and celebration. Uh, Everything from the discovery of pregnancy, to sharing the news with loved ones, to the gender reveal party, as long as you don't start a wildfire, (laughs) uh, to birth itself, looking into your child's eyes and dreaming about who they'll become, are all sources of great joy for the parents and everyone surrounding them, right? And that's not to say that those times aren't marked by difficulties. You know, some sleepless nights, some doctor appointments, unexpected emergencies. But the overarching mood of birth is one of celebration and merriment. The idea here is that Solomon is telling us to look out into the nursery and see all of this potential in new life. And then in the next instant, he is ripping that away and pulling us to the graveyard. The time for death, the end of all your plans and any dreams. Perhaps sudden and unexpected or maybe drawn out and slowly approaching, it comes. Solomon has talked about death in the previous chapter, saying that no matter how foolish or wise you are or lazy or hardworking, the same event happens to them all. And he recognizes that no matter what you do in this life or no matter how much you try to fight against it, death awaits all at the end of the day. See, it's in this pairing of birth and death that Solomon introduces us to the thread that runs through this whole poem, that life is unpredictable. You have no say over the circumstances of your birth such as where you'll be born or who your parents will be or what kind of situation they'll be in. But these kinds of things have an undeniable impact on the entirety of your life. And on the other end, no matter how much you you push or fight or try to stave it off, death will come for everyone. So moving on, we see the same theme in verse two. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck, Anyone who's been trying to grow their own fruits and vegetables, and I suspect that there are probably more of you now than there were maybe a year ago, uh, understands this, right? Although it's different for every crop, there are undeniably seasons to plant and to harvest. Except maybe here in Southern California. Um, my mother got a cherry tomato plant early on in the summer, and you know it was like harvest season. So there's some tomatoes on it, and she was told, "Oh, you know, it'll probably keep producing fruit until like early fall, and then it'll be done." Uh, I was just there yesterday, and it is still trying to pop out tomatoes. <laughs> uh, they're definitely more green and not as, not as like plump or ripe, but yeah, it's still trying. <laughs> we're pretty sure that it's confused with all of the back-and-forth weather, and I mean, you know, we're confused too, so that makes sense. It was just like 70 a week ago, and now it's 60, 50, so who knows? <laughs> uh, but you know, for most other plants and for most other regions, there's a planting time and a harvest time. And although it's more convenient if maybe these times fit around our schedule or what we want, that's not really the case. And although we've made many advances in agricultural technology, there's nothing quite as good as a watermelon right at the peak of ripeness in the middle of summer, is there? So moving on to the next few verses, a time to kill and heal, to break down and build up, to weep and laugh, to mourn and to dance. I'm not gonna go into too much detail But these are more reminders that in life, there are the good things and the bad things, the pleasurable and the painful, often one right after the other. Now, no one's quite sure what this next pair means, gathering and casting stones. I've looked at a lot of commentaries, read a lot of stuff online. Some say it's innuendo, some say it's an agricultural thing, some say it's judicial, some say it's even like warfare. Uh, No one knows. But I mean, you get the point, right? It's the ebbs and the flows of life. It's the gathering and the casting, the bringing in and putting out. It's these these natural rhythms. A time to embrace, a time to refrain. This one is probably more clear to us now than it ever has been before. Uh, yeah, man, hugging people. That was, <laughs> that was a time. Uh, my parents and I now will sometimes uh, fist bump or do like the elbow bump or we'll do this like offset hug thing where, like, their head's here, my head's over here and, like, try not to touch or, like, get too close to each other. Uh, Yeah. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and sew, to speak and keep silent, love and hate, and finally a time for war and a time for peace. No matter how politically active you are or how much you retweet your favorite politician Matters of war and peace usually happen at a much higher geopolitical scale than any of us ever hope to have any kind of control over, right? See, this is what Solomon is trying to show us, that our lives are filled with planned events and things that are sometimes the consequence of good decisions, sometimes the consequence of bad decisions. But for as much as we try to control our paths, there are unplanned events, some unimaginably good, and some so devastating that we wouldn't wish them on our worst enemies. See, he's showing us that life is like a roller coaster. It dives and it rolls and it goes up and down and twists and turns, and then all too soon it comes to a screeching halt. I think that the reason why this poem is so commonly read at funerals is because as far as we can see and observe, this is an accurate depiction of the entirety of life here on this world. So you're born, and then a bunch of chaotic stuff happens to you, good and bad, and then you die, and that's it. Everyone can feel this because that's the structure of this world. And if this is all that you believe, then you'll say things like, oh, he had a hard life, but at least it's over, right? And so many people say this because this is a very natural conclusion to come to. But Solomon didn't start this poem by saying that life is chaos, but by saying that everything is orderly, that these times and seasons of life are appointed. For us as believers, we know that these seasons aren't random, but that everything is ordained by God. What Solomon is getting at is that these seasons of life remind us of God's sovereignty. These seasons of life remind us of God's sovereignty. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. Has anyone gotten into doing those this year? Uh, my girlfriend got me one for Valentine's Day and we've just started it a couple months ago. Uh, we made some progress, but we're both pretty new to jigsaw puzzles, so we weren't able to finish it in one sitting. So we had to put it back in the box, and it's it's been there ever since. <laughs> um, I do really want to finish it because it's a picture of my favorite actor uh, Liam Neeson <laughs> saying, "Be mine, Matthew." You know, it's whatever j- guy uh, dreams of, right? <laughs> but we need a whole we need to dedicate a table to it so we can finish it over like multiple days. And neither of us have that kind of room in our apartments. So someday we will finish it. <laughs> But this is the picture that Solomon is painting. It's a jigsaw puzzle, but one where we don't always know what the picture is, and the pieces that we get handed don't always fit. And maybe it's one of those really hard puzzles where like, you know, the corner pieces actually go in the middle somewhere, and like, the edge pieces line up and go off to the side. They're not like the nice frame. Uh, and you know, maybe you get some of the pieces to fit together and you see like a picture like, Oh, it's a planet. This is going to be a spacescape. And then you get another piece handed to you and it's like an elephant and you're like, okay, well now I, I'm just confused. I have no idea (laughs) what's going on. And then all of a sudden you stop getting pieces and then all you're left with is an incomplete picture. See, we, in our limited perspective are unable to see what the entire picture is, but we know that these pieces are handed to us by a God who does. Because he is the one who designed it all and who designates these times see this is the tension that solomon presents and i don't think that you need to look very far in your own life to sense it there are probably plenty of times either in your own life or the lives of your loved ones where you wish things were different where you would rather not die pluck kill break weep mourn lose cast tear hate or war and if this is you then know that you aren't alone Everyone experiences it because this is what life is like in a fallen world. But our hope comes from the fact that this poem will only be half true in heaven because there will only be times for the good, not the bad anymore. For now, though, this is what our experience will be. But this is only the beginning. It is so crucial that this poem not be removed from what comes after because if this is all that life were about, we would be left with a sovereign God who just likes to mess with us or who must not have our interests at heart. If this is all we have, as so much as the world believes, then of course we'd believe the pagan philosophy of Isaiah, Isaiah 22, 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But Solomon presses on and so shall we. Verse nine, what gain has the worker for his toil? It seems like kind of a strange question, right? He just spent all this time talking about time, and painting a picture of sovereignty. And now he's asking about work? Well, this question is actually very much in line with the overarching narrative of Ecclesiastes. He talks about the folly of work in chapter two and the ethics of work in chapters four, five, and six. And so it's also very relevant here. You see the word gain used in this verse doesn't just refer to a wage or a salary, but means advantage. See, he's not saying like, oh, how much does the worker make for his time? He's saying, what is the point of all this toil and all this work and all that we do if all our plans can get thwarted at every turn? He goes on to say, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The NIV says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Friends, living a life like this, described in this chapter, in a world this fallen, it can often feel like a burden, can't it? Where is all this going? What do we get out of this life other than pain and pleasure in unequal measures? Now it's around here that we may want to close the book of Ecclesiastes and jump over to Romans, right? For I know in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, right? And don't worry, we will get there. But first, we need to see what Solomon is saying to us here. Uh, It was John Piper that once said, "'Raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. "'Digging is hard, but you might get a diamond.'" I believe that all of scripture is relevant and important to us, and that's why it's important that we don't just skip over the parts that are hard or that are confusing, because it's the same spirit that inspired it all. And I believe that what Solomon is saying here is very relevant to us just as much as it was when he wrote it. And that's why we need to see what it is. And here it is. Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. See, this is where Solomon is going with not just this chapter, but this entire book. Everything is under God. Yes. And not only that, but he is also making it all beautiful, but in his time, that jigsaw puzzle would be a lot less frustrating if I told you that those pieces you're placing are only part of a beautiful picture, right? When we're so caught up in our individual pieces and figuring out why they are the, the way they are and trying to analyze them and get some sort of meaning out of just a single piece, we will always be thwarted because that's not how the puzzle works, right? We know that we serve a God who is weaving a beautiful narrative, not only in the grand sense of redeeming this world and bringing his church back to him one day, but his power is so infinitely capable that we know he cares for each person individually and for their story. This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 12, about the fields of the flowers and the flowers of the field, sorry, and the birds of the air, about how God cares for them, even though they pass away so quickly. And we know that we will go through this life with nothing but a handful of puzzle pieces, unable to make sense of them all. But we know that we can trust the divine artist because he ordains the passing of these seasons and because he promised to make all things beautiful in its time. And I can't promise you that it'll be easy or that it'll look nice when you're going through it because I don't have that picture. And we don't know if we're going to live lives of relative ease or lives like Job where we lose it all or lives of great prosperity or loss But what I do know, what God promises, is that in the end, from his perspective, it's not going to just be bearable, it's not going to be okay, it's going to be beautiful, but in its time. See here, time is being redeemed, where in the the poem it was repetitive, it was a yoke, it was a burden just kind of dragging us down. Now it's being redeemed and God is using it to create something beautiful. Can that provide you with some measure of comfort? Yes, I hope so. Can it give you the answers that you so desperately seek? No. Because in the same breath, Solomon says that God has put eternity into our hearts, but so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We don't get those answers because we are not God. Here's an example. I am not a parent. Uh, I hope to be one day, God willing, but that's for future Matthew. Matthew. What I have been is a child. And some would argue that in many ways I still am, but that's beside the point. Uh, see, growing up, I would always want to stay up late playing video games or hang out with my friends at church. Uh, my mom keeps telling me that like, when she would drop me off at daycare, when my parents would work, she would come to pick me up and I'd never want to like leave. <laughs> um, but then she would start the count, you know? <laughs> and that's when I knew that she meant business, so I had to go. Uh, Similarly, my parents would also make sure that I ate uh, fruits and vegetables and lots of healthy things, and not just what I wanted to eat, which was probably just candy and ice cream and lots of junk food all day. Uh, Parents, you're familiar with this, right? (laughs) And, you know, why do you do it? You know, you don't do it just because you like depriving your children of joy, right? You do it because, you know, you understand the concept of tomorrow. and understand needing to wake up and go to school, go to church, how you need to go to work. Uh, And you know, you help them meet their nutritional needs um, and generally help children survive things above their pay grade. (laughs) So if we as human children can't understand what our human parents are doing, then of course we as helpless creatures wouldn't be able to understand what a perfect God is doing. All we can do is trust his character and that his decisions are good. It's when we decide that we don't want to acknowledge and respect the difference between a sovereign creator and a created being that we get into trouble. See, when Solomon says that we have eternity written in our hearts, that's meant to draw us to God, but our sinful nature warps that and makes us want to become God. See, this is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. When the serpent asked them if they wanted to be like God and know good and evil, instead of respecting the boundaries and the places that God has created, They went against God's plan and ate of the fruit, and in doing so, brought sin into this world. What they should have done, what God said, what Solomon does prescribe to us, is to be joyful, to do good, to eat and drink, and take pleasure in our toil, because this is a gift of God. A gift is something good from the giver to the receiver, right? See, Solomon spends many chapters recounting his efforts to find meaning in pleasures, in work, in building great monuments, A lifetime of self-seeking all for naught. He has done this work, and yet so many people today are caught up in these same pursuits. We think, oh, if I can become famous, then I'll be happy. Or if I can make this amount of money, then I'll be someone. But the reality is that no matter how much you try to accomplish and no matter how many goals and quotas you try to meet in this world, you will never be satisfied. But this doesn't mean that we should just give up and resign ourselves to a fate of meaninglessness. Instead, we trust in the God that ordains, and we enjoy the things that God has put here for us to enjoy. You see how this is different from the pagan philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die? It's a subtle but very important difference because this is a God-centered conclusion. It recognizes God's rightful place over us and gets us to stop finding answers in all the things of this world because there are none there, and there were never meant to be. So, why does God do things this way? Is it to confuse us? Is it to mess with us? Is it because he just likes seeing us spin our wheels? Here's why. Verse 14. God has done it so that people fear before him. I'd like to read a quote by a former vice presidential candidate, Kanye West. Uh, <laughs> This is what happens when you get a young adult on the pulpit. You get Kanye (laughs) tweets. Um, But I want to read this because I feel like many people feel the same way, um, even among Christians. He says, I don't subscribe the term and concept of God-fearing. That's a dated mentality that was used to control people. We are in the future. If God is love and loves the opposite of fear, then then a thinking emoji and then a man shrugging emoji... (laughs) To fear God makes no sense, followed by five shrugging emojis. (laughs) Let me read that again. I don't subscribe to the term and concept of God-fearing. That's a dated mentality that was used to control people. We are in the future. If God is love and love, it's the opposite of fear, then to fear God makes no sense. Does this idea sound familiar to you? I feel like this is something that many people believe, both in the church and out of the church. But this is what happens when we forget who is already at the reins. See, there is nothing in the Bible that is trying to control you. From start to finish, God's sovereignty is on full display, whether you like it or not. God has no problems controlling you. What he wants to do is open your eyes to the realities he's created. And then it's up to you how to react. See, when these things come together, when we see that God is sovereign, when we know that he is good and is making all things beautiful in its time, and that moves us to fear him, then of course we would be able to enjoy the gifts of God, and of course we'd have the belief that, as verse 14 says, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. We fear God, and that leads us to respect him. And when we fear God, we love him. When we fear God, we cling to him. And when we fear God, we worship him. And this, too, is for our good, because as the section finishes saying, it says, God seeks what has been driven away, or as the NIV says, God will call the past into account. Now there are many potential applications that can be taken from a sermon like this, whether it's, you know, stop trying to find meaning in all of these things, stop trying to, I don't know, keep seeking uh, just purpose in things of this world, put your identity in God, or just even recognizing God's sovereignty. But there is one application that I believe is universal and that everyone here uh, needs to apply, myself included. And that is that we should repent. We should repent. Because as this says, God will call the past into account. And that means that God will look back on everything, both generally in this world and specifically in each of our individual lives. And we will have to give an account for our lives, all the sins, all the failures, and all the shortcomings And we can respond one of two ways. We can either say, well, I did my best, or I'm not as bad as that person, and that's not going to go well for us, and our sins will rest on us for all of eternity. Or we can trust in God and lean on Jesus' sacrifice, trust that our ways are not good enough, and that no matter what we do, we will never be perfect enough for a sovereign, good God. But thankfully, God, seeing our plight, did not leave us to just be eternally doomed. Uh, He provided a way, and that was by sending Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he made a way that if we trust in him and acknowledge him as our Lord and our master, we can repair that relationship and we can be with God forever. See, when we fear God, we trust in him and we trust that he is powerful, that he loved us and he provided a way back to us back for us back to him when we were still rebels fearing god means that we know that in all things our ways are not better than his both in regards to our life here on earth and our lives in eternity fearing him knowing means knowing that our way is not good enough and our attempts to save ourselves are ultimately futile and so we lean on him and so we trust him it means that just as we can trust him with the seasons of our lives and all the confusion we face in this world that if we cling to him, we can find peace and joy in the world to come. Let's pray. <sighs> Dear Lord, we, we just thank you for all the ways that you are in control and all the ways that you are good. And Lord, we, we know that ultimately you are making everything beautiful. So I pray that we can just learn to trust you more and learn to lean on you more. And in our confusion and when we just don't know what's going on, Lord, I pray that we remember that you do know what's going on and that you love us. So, Lord, I pray that, yeah, that moves us to fear you and to love you and respect you and that every day, more and more, we will learn that your ways are better than our ways. And I pray that you will be transforming us to know and acknowledge and to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.